The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Indeed, with voices uplifted and hearts opened, we gather together in the nape of Marsh Chapel, 735 Commonwealth Avenue, across the airwaves of WBUR 90.9 FM, and via internet signals at WBUR.org. This week, we continue our Darwin and Faith National Preacher Series, marking the 200th anniversary of Darwin's birth and 150th anniversary of the publication of his landmark on the origin of species. We welcome to the pulpit today, Dr. Kirk Weichter McNelly, Assistant Professor of Theology at Boston University School of Theology. Furthermore, we are grateful for the musical offerings of the Marsh Chapel Summer Choir, led by Justin Blackwell and Tim Westerhouse. Dean Hill sends his regards as he is away in these weeks, preaching the gospel in the voice of Marsh Chapel across the country. We invite you, as you are so moved, to join us in our life together by presence, response, support, and ministry among us. For those listening on airwaves and internet signals especially, we encourage you to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. More information about social networking, the podcast, and the opportunity for online giving are available on the Marsh Chapel website, bu.edu chapel. Now let us stand as we are able in the praise of God.
us pray. Grant to us, Lord, we pray, the spirit to think and do always those things that are right, that we who cannot exist without you may be be enabled to live according to your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated for a time of silent confession during the singing of the Kyrie. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 22 through 27. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I display my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Please join me in saying verses 1 through 8 from Psalm 34 with the antiphone. God's praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast to the Lord, but the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt God's name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Look to God, and be radiant, so your faces shall never be ashamed. This poor soul cried, and was heard of the Lord, and was saved from every trouble. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good, happy are those who take refuge in God. stand together for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Glory, Glory to you, O Lord. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. 
What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. I am pleased and honored to be with you at Marsh Chapel this morning. By way of introduction, I want to say that my wife, Jennifer, who is pastor at Church of the Covenant in Boston's Back Bay, is also preaching this morning, and she's preaching on the same passage, Jesus and Nicodemus. Uh, our two sermons are interconnected, uh, the product of a number of conversations we've had throughout the week. As we explored the text from the Gospel of John together, we felt ourselves joining the ancient conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, 
and wondering together how Jesus would have wanted Nicodemus to respond. So let me begin with a question. What does it mean for Christians to take the Bible seriously? We who live in the United States at the beginning of the 21st century, in a time of political transition and economic collapse, of war and climatic upheaval, face no shortage of questions regarding how we ought to live our lives. The questions for our time are many and momentous, but none is more fundamental for Christians, I think, than this. What does it mean to take the Bible seriously? The answer we give to this question bears on any other we might give. We are a people of the book. Our identity is tied both theologically and sociologically to the ways in which we use this collection of sacred texts to orient ourselves in and make sense of the world. Now, in many parts of American culture, to take the Bible seriously means to take it literally. This usually means accepting what the Bible says as being historically accurate whenever it refers to worldly things and events, and it also means, typically, accepting that the Bible can and ought to function as an instruction manual for how to live one's life, taking the Bible literally. These two aspects of biblical literalism, historical accuracy and instruction, are closely tied to one another. For without historical accuracy, trust in the Bible's prescriptions would be misplaced. And apart from its being a source of instruction, there would be no point in worrying about its historical accuracy. Biblical literalism is really about the authority of the Bible to instruct. And literalism construes this authority chiefly in terms of fidelity to historical fact. Now, to appreciate the dominance of biblical literalism within our culture, one need only note that the appropriateness of reading the Bible literally is the single point upon which fundamentalists and atheists agree. Both contend that the Bible must be read literally if it is to be understood rightly. Now, of course, atheists think that the Bible thus understood is in fact false, both in terms of what it reports and in terms of what it prescribes. But like the average fundamentalist, the average atheist is quite invested, in fact, in believing that the only authentically Christian reading of the Bible is a literal one. Any more sophisticated, less literal approach, typically dismissed by the fundamentalist and the atheist alike as nothing more than a modernist, ivory tower, elitist, in a word, inauthentic attempt to evade the clear meaning of the text. Now, how did we get here? How did America get itself into a place where the dominant view of the Bible in our country, among both believers and non-believers, is that Christians must read their scriptures literally if they are to understand them rightly? After all, it, it, it wasn't always the case that Christians understood literal to be a synonym for most authentic. For much of its history, the church in its various forms and locations has recognized the legitimacy and necessity of a wide variety of interpretive approaches to biblical texts, even and especially those texts which are now commonly regarded by more conservative Christians as being plainly historical. 
A key part of the story of the recent rise of biblical literalism lies, I think, in the challenge posed by Darwin's account of evolution to Christian theological views of the uniqueness of the human person, which, especially since the Enlightenment, has been couched primarily in terms of the human capacity to rationally determine and do what is in our own best interest. The singular place of humanity among all creation, yes, it is a basic theological theme that runs throughout the Bible. From the creation accounts in Genesis to Paul's remarks in Romans 8 about all of creation being in bondage to decay on account of what humanity has done. But Darwin's view of the origin of species with its elimination of the genealogical boundary between human and non-human life threatened people's ideas of human uniqueness and with it their sense of being rational agents capable of controlling their own behaviors and beliefs. But rather than rethink the meaning of human uniqueness, conservative American Christianity by and large chose to respond by attacking Darwinism, claiming that it is fundamentally incompatible with the creation accounts of Genesis. Significantly, though, this line of attack has required an interpretive innovation, namely, reading the creation accounts in Genesis primarily as historical reports of humanity's physical and biological origin, rather than as theological accounts of humanity's spiritual condition. This interpretive innovation happened under the guise of rejecting modernity, but it has a distinctively modern feel. Out with condition, in with origin. Out with value, in with fact. Out with meaning, in with reference. As the creationist Dwayne Gish once put it, the Bible is the Christian's textbook on the science of creation. Now, in the face of such stifling and stultifying innovation, what is a Christian to do who feels the full weight of her tradition against literalism? How to break the chains that have bound authenticity to the rack of literalism? How to avoid misusing scripture by turning the good news into bad news that yields arbitrary and false certainties and makes the Bible largely irrelevant to the real and complex struggles and questions of our day. Where to turn for a richer, deeper, more faithful understanding of how a Christian should read the Bible for the sake of living a life pleasing to God. Where to go for an authentic alternative to the inauthentic and impoverished view of the God's word as a scientific textbook and a moralizing instruction manual. Where to go for a view of the Bible as an entryway into, the, into a divine world of meaning that one can call home? Into a river of divine sympathy that buoys up the deepest and most complex truths of one's own life? To a hand that brings the divine hand to steady one's soul in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death? Where to turn? Where? To the Bible course, to Jesus, and I think to his encounter with Nicodemus. There's a long tradition of interpreting this exchange as one of confrontation, but I think this line of interpretation is mistaken, 
And I think that the story actually invites a helpful comparison between how Jesus wants to be read by Nicodemus and how God wants to be read by us through Scripture. When Nicodemus first comes to Jesus, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus responds that no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Now, this answer has traditionally been interpreted as a rebuke, but I see nothing in the surrounding text to support that reading. In fact, that reading strikes me as an anti-Semitic reading, born of a desire to see the Pharisees in general, and Nicodemus in particular, as emblematic of a Jewish fixation with the law. To the contrary, I hear in Jesus' response to Nicodemus a guarded affirmation of his ability to see God at work in Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus affirms Nicodemus' judgment in a way that invites him to say more, to explain himself, to claim his own view of Jesus' identity. Jesus gives Nicodemus the benefit of the doubt, despite the lateness of the hour, and opens up a space for the two of them to enter into real conversation. Notice as well that in this first response, Jesus answers Nicodemus not by talking about how to enter the kingdom, but with a remark about how to see it. Nicodemus has just said that he sees the presence of God in Jesus' ministry. And Jesus responds by saying that anyone who sees as Nicodemus does has been born from above. This, I think, is an affirmation of Nicodemus' insight and an invitation to say more. But Nicodemus does not attempt to clarify his own views. He holds his cards close to his chest and instead asks Jesus a question of clarification. Having heard born from above as born again, the Greek can mean both, he apparently thinks that Jesus is instructing him on some esoteric connection between entering the kingdom and physical rebirth. So he asks Jesus, can one enter a second time into the mother's womb? Jesus, with a bit of patience and grace, it seems to me, follows Nicodemus's obtuse line of questioning even as he corrects the basic misunderstanding. He shifts from the language of seeing to the language of entering, but he clarifies that he's speaking in spiritual rather than physical or biological terms. What is at stake for Jesus is the mystery by which people see or do not see God at work in the world. When Nicodemus' second response reveals that he is still thinking literally, Jesus becomes exasperated. Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Having tried and failed to draw Nicodemus into a conversation about his own views, Jesus then embarks on a lengthy monologue about his relationship to God. This monologue, which was not read this morning, includes the beautiful and well-known verse expressing God's love for the world, John 3.16. But sadly, the conversation with Nicodemus is over. What does it mean to take Jesus seriously? He wants a conversation, it seems to me, with Nicodemus. But Nicodemus deflects the offer. 
Instead, he flattens out Jesus' remarks and persists in trying to make literal sense of them. Jesus wants to engage Nicodemus as someone who has seen God at work in the world. But in return, Nicodemus treats Jesus as a cultic instructor who might show him how to unlock the door of salvation. Could you clarify that, please? What did you mean about entering the womb? And I didn't get the part about the wind. Uh, How exactly does the wind blow? (sighs) Taking the Bible seriously does not mean fixating on the literal meaning of its words. Any more than taking Jesus seriously means fixating on the literal meaning of his words. Taking Jesus and the Bible seriously means responding to a divine offer for honest and complex conversation about our own views of Jesus' ministry, the world, and ourselves in it. It means making the Bible more important rather than less important in our lives. It means letting the Bible function as the primary world of meaning we inhabit as we try to make sense of our lives and as we decide how to live them out. It means weaving together the stories of our own lives with the stories of God's Word so that they become inextricably linked. The real challenge of faith, I think, is not to believe in the literal truth of the Bible, but to make the Bible, and through the Bible, God, a real conversation partner in all of our lives. Not just in those isolated moments of prayer or religious ritual, but in the real, specific challenges and questions that we face in our work, our personal relationships, in our social and communal lives. Whether consciously or not, we all make meaning out of the stories of our lives by holding them in conversation with other narratives. Some of us do this with novels, some with movies, others with talk radio, TV, magazines. Who or what are the primary narrative partners in your life. Have you ever considered letting the Bible play that role? Can you imagine taking the Bible seriously enough to do that? And can you see why the literalist approach to biblical interpretation is so poorly suited to allowing the Bible to play such an important role? As a seminarian in the early 1990s, I participated in a reading and discussion group with several other students who became close friends. And at one point, we decided to read together the story of David and Absalom, which spans a number of chapters in the book of 2 Samuel, and which is as powerful and complex a family story as any to be found in a contemporary novel or an HBO series. Now, as we read and reflected on this story together, we found ourselves coming to new insights about our own families, the pain and joy of our, of our lives together. We didn't find answers, nor did we find ourselves uh, or our families fixed by these conversations. Yet it was powerful to share and reinterpret our own family stories in light of that ancient biblical story. Perhaps what it means to be born anew or from above is to enter into a deeper conversation with God through the biblical narratives so that we can begin to see more of our own lives from inside the biblical world 
and more of the world around us in terms of God's transforming presence in it. What does it mean to take the Bible seriously? It means letting the Bible function as an entryway into a divine world of meaning that we can call home. It means letting the Bible function as a river of divine sympathy that buoys up the deepest and most complex truths of our lives. It means letting the Bible function as a hand that brings the divine hand to steady our souls when we find ourselves in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. This way of reading the Bible has the potential to take us far beyond literalism to a place that is at once authentically Christian and stubbornly non-literal. Jesus wanted Nicodemus to go there with him, but he didn't. What about us? Will we enter that sacred space? Now let us sing together the call to prayer, Lead Me, Lord, in 473. Repentance, thanksgiving, and concern we bow before you. Great is your faithfulness, boundless is your love, and holy is your name. You alone are worthy to be praised. We honor and adore you, almighty God. Merciful God, we humbly admit that we have sinned. Forgive us, Father, for we have failed to imitate Christ's life of love but we open our hearts to you. Come, Holy Spirit. We welcome your cleansing touch so that lies and evil words are replaced with truth and words of encouragement. We willingly submit our hearts for renewal so that our bitterness, rage, and anger are replaced with kindness and compassion. 
Heal us, Holy Spirit. Thank you, loving Father, for our many blessings. We give thanks for the natural wonders around us. We stand in awe and thank you for your creation and pray that we remember our responsibility to take care of it. Help us to live responsibly. We pray for our local community, our country, and its leaders. Loving God, we put our trust in you, for we know that you will abide with us in times of distress as well as joy. We pray for those who are caught in the crossfire of violence. Have mercy on us all and grant us peace. Give comfort to the sick, the grieving, and those who are lonely or lost. We pray for the men and women of our military and others in service around the world. Comfort and guide them and their families and friends. We ask your blessings for those who have returned from combat zones as they transition to normalcy. Hear our prayer, for we offer them in the name of the bread of life, Jesus Christ, and we pray them as he taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. peace of the Lord be always with you. And also with you. Hello out there to you here in the nave of Marsh Chapel and hello to all of you listening on the radio and on the podcast. My name is Elizabeth Fomby. I'm the director of, uh, sorry, the director of hospitality of Marsh Chapel. Um, the first thing I want to let you know about is the red pads that are at the end of your pews towards the center aisle. If you'll notice, um, there is an opportunity for you to um, provide some information so we can get to know you better, and also so that you sitting in the pews can get to know each other's names. So I encourage you to fill those out. I also would like to let you know that we have coffee hour downstairs in the Marsh Room in the basement. Um, that is another opportunity for um, you to get to know each other better, so I encourage you to stop by and join us for refreshments. 
Also, there are some large print hymnals that we just got in the last month or so. Um, they are in the narthex of the sanctuary, of the narthex, so if you are interested in receiving one of those, just notify an usher as you walk into the sanctuary. We've also um, announced that we are now on Facebook and Twitter, so I encourage you to check that out. Just search for Marsh Chapel. You can follow us there. Also, we have an alumni group that we just started on Facebook. If you feel that you were once affiliated with Marsh, if you were a student at BU and you attended service with us, if you were a faculty person, a staff person, if you sang in the choir for us, if you were a congregant, I would invite you to check that out on Facebook. Just search for Marsh Chapel Alumni Group and um, you'll find perhaps some people you haven't seen for a while. So again, I encourage you to check that out. Last week, um, during the service, I got a call from a couple who were listening from the mountainsides of the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And it was really nice to hear that people out there are listening. So again, I um, would like to say that it's wonderful to hear your voice if you're listening, especially on the podcast or on the radio. We would love to hear your voice or to, to get a letter from you or something. So I encourage any a written letter, an email, a phone call. We would love to hear from you. Our address here at Marsh is 735 Commonwealth Avenue, Boston, Massachusetts, 02215, if you want to write us a letter. Our email is chapel at bu.edu, and our phone number is 617-353-3560. So we would love to hear from you. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
everlasting word and intangible spirit, let this offering be not a donation of resources only, but a representation of the commitment of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength to your love and guidance. Amen. in Christ to go forth and make peace in this world with the assurance that God still speaks to us with the dawn of every morning and the setting of every sun. You are loved. Now go and let that love be a light for the world. Amen. Amen. Oh. 